you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we have come now to what we know as the Beatitudes, comes from a Latin word that means blessed, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you remember the iconic movie quote, there is no crying in baseball. 30 years ago, uh, Tom Hanks uh, played Bobby Duggan, uh, a baseball coach. He's in the movie called A League of Their Own. He's chiding from the dugout, an outfielder who just cannot hit her cutoff man. And so in the midst of that, just gets under her skin. And then that's where that uh, famous quote comes from. In many ways, I think what uh, resonates in us when we hear that quote is that many of us in this room have sort of grown up in a society where, where that was, was a mantra that we sort of live by. You, you fall off your bike and you what? I mean, you, you tough it out. You dry up those tears. There, there's something about whether it's the athletic fields or whether it's uh, in the pursuit of, of something within school that is very familiar to us to, to get over things and there's not a whole lot of room for an expression of emotion. We, we want to be tough. We want to move forward in life. So there's no crying in a lot of things in life. That's what's so countercultural about the Beatitudes is last week we talked about how we are called in God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit is he says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and then we come to Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 that tells us blessed are they who mourn why for they will be comforted blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted you weren't with us last week we talked about the Beatitudes is this upside down kingdom it turns our world's values on their head oftentimes. And here we come to the second beatitude that once again surprisingly flips our expectations of what it means to be blessed. I mean, seriously, blessed are you in your grief? Seriously, blessed are you in your tears? Seriously, blessed are you in your pain? Seriously, blessed in your hurt? What type of mourning is Jesus talking about? In this passage here, throughout 2,000 years of church history, uh, scholars and pastors and teachers of God's word have, have speculated that, that maybe Jesus is talking not necessarily, blessed are you when you lose a loved one through death, but rather, blessed are you when you mourn over your grief, or the, uh, mourn over sin. Blessed are you when you mourn over the persecution that you're experiencing here. Maybe Jesus is talking about something here that, that is removed from a funeral home. Maybe Jesus is talking about something that is more interior to your heart and to my heart as we mourn over the sin. And so for 2,000 years, there have been different interpretations of what the source of the mourning is. But as I told you last week, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we have to hear the rich allusions to the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is going to be this interpretive lens that gives us insight to understand God's word here, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And as you listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, there is an Old Testament echo that informs what Jesus is talking about here. And those first century Jews would have heard in Jesus' words, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3. 
Isaiah chapter 61 in actuality informs much of the Beatitudes here. Listen for the echoes in the Sermon on the Mount. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the all of gladness instead of what? Of mourning. So Isaiah chapter 61 in many ways becomes this interpretive lens to help us understand what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, much more so when you uh, compare this and understand how in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes into the temple after his baptism, after his temptation. He opens in the temple the scroll of Isaiah. And what does he read from? He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the very passages that we have just read here. In many ways, Jesus is saying, in my ministry, I am the one that you've been longing for. That in me, my words and my presence, I am the Messiah. So for the original Jew listening to these words of Isaiah here, they were longing for a Messiah who is going to comfort them in their exile. They're longing in Isaiah's day for the temple to be restored. They're longing for God's favor upon the nation of Israel to, to return. And here Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am here I am your long and awaited comforter. Now, you're not a first century Jew. I'm not a first century Jew. Certainly, uh, we are here, and, and it is very difficult for us to get in the, the, the mind space of what it would have been like for Isaiah's words to have been fulfilled in their own hearing because we don't have a background uh, of, of exile. We, we've never been like the, the Jews, in, not in our homeland, in exile. More than that, we've never had the experience of what it would have been like for that first century Jew who was living under Roman occupation here. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, certainly that first century audience would have heard this in light of those echoes of Isaiah 61, would have heard this in light of the background of exile in the foreground of Roman occupation here. So does this mean anything for you and for me? And the answer, of course, is yes. What truth does this hold for us? What holds much truth? Because we still live in a day where we know the effects of sin. We still live in a day where we know that injustice and pain and heartache still are a part of our world, while, while the details are different. While exile and Roman occupation, that's not our narrative. What Jesus promised as first century followers of him, you can still experience in that flip side, upside down kingdom of God here. Do you know? Do you know, follower of God, that you can truly find comfort in the midst of the injustices of this world, that you can truly find comfort in the midst of the loss of a loved one, that you can truly found, find comfort even when you, when you mourn over sin. Now, what Jesus isn't saying here is that we are called to live the somber 
melancholy type of life. He, he is not telling us to, to frolic to funerals. He's not telling us for, to just uh, meditate and, and to live in our grief here. No, what he is saying here is that when you are traveling through the valley of suffering and loss, that there is comfort. And how does that comfort come to you? And how does it come to me? Well, it comes in a, in a threefold way. We are comforted first by God's presence with us in our grief. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have placed your faith in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I, we are comforted by God's presence with us in our grief. Now, what does this look like? Well, we're, we're comforted by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. We're comforted by the Holy Spirit utilizing the word of God and the people of God to provide comfort for us. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is this wonderful reminder and, and really the fulfillment of uh, Psalm four, uh, 23 that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. A rod and a staff for an a ancient, uh, ancient Near Eastern shepherd would, would have been what the shepherd would have utilized to, to fend off foes. A rod and a staff would have been something that the shepherd would have utilized to guide his sheep. And, and so a rod and a staff, they're, they're, they're images of intimacy. A shepherd has to be with the flock to be able to use a rod and a staff. So what the psalmist is saying here is, is even when you walk through the valley of, of grief, even when you walk through the valley of loss, your shepherd, the good shepherd, through the promise of the Holy Spirit that is in you, being reminded that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28 that I will never leave you nor forsake you. That he continues through the power of his indwelling spirit to walk with you no matter the difficulties of your life. Now not only does he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, use the word of God to comfort us, but he uses the people of God to comfort us. One of the great truths that Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4 through is this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all what? Comfort. God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able, do you hear this? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul is telling us something that's, that's very helpful for us, and that is that while the Holy Spirit dwells in us and provides comfort to us, he also utilizes not only the Word of God to comfort us in our times of affliction, but he utilizes the people of God. You know this. If, if, if you've ever stood in a receiving line at a funeral home, you know that there is something about the tangible presence of loved ones and friends that walk through that line and hug your neck. You know that there is something about that person, that, that friend of yours. When, when that news is given to you and they walk into the room and you burst forth with tears and you wrap yourselves into their arms... 
And they don't have all the right words. They don't have a magic wand to fix whatever you're going through in that moment. But it is just their tangible presence with you, the power of the Holy Spirit ministering through their presence, their love, their hug, their embrace. And so we're comforted by God's presence with us in the midst of our grief. And it comes through the word of God. It comes through the people of God. He is with us in our grief. But more than that, we're also comforted by Jesus' personal experience of our grief. We are comforted by Jesus' personal experience of our own grief. Isaiah chapter 53 reads this way in verse 4. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. God's Son... Jesus Christ, he walked the path of mourning. He walked the path of sorrow. He knows what it's to be betrayed. So if you've been betrayed, he's walked in your shoes. If you've been deserted, he's walked in your shoes. If you have grieved over the loss of a loved one or a friend, he knows what it's like to show up on the scene and have Mary and Martha come to him and say, if you would have been here, my brother would not be dead. He knows what it's like to to lose loved ones. He knows what it's like to weep over Jerusalem as he desires to draw them to himself. I don't know about you, but as a pastor, one of the things that I have the opportunity to do is is to be with people in their time of loss, in their time of grief. And it is a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to do that. But I tell you that there, there are some things I just don't say. I've just put a moratorium on this phrase. And the phrase is, I, I know what you're going through. I, I just, I just want to offer this. I mean, I'm sure that there are exceptions where that's appropriate. But, but there is something about the individuality of grief. That there is something about the, the uniqueness of grief. Even if on paper you, you've experienced the, the same loss the same injustice, the same sorrow, the same painful experience. It, it just on paper, it just seems that everything connects. Uh, we're so, our, our life histories are unique. Our dispositions are unique. Our relationships are unique. All of these things provide a, a window to remind us that, that while we can empathize with people, we cannot fully realize their grief because all of our paths of grief are unique. And so it's helpful for us to, to not say, I, I know what you're going through. But while I cannot say that, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is there is one who can say to you, I know what you are going through. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the message of your salvation and my salvation. When Paul would say this, this powerful truth that at times is staggering to us, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake he made Jesus, him, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our great high priest, who hung on this coarse and cruel Roman cross, 
He knows the grief of a fallen world. The pain of a world that is groaning for redemption, he becomes, as he, he assumes it, as he is the, the payment for our sins, the sin behind every betrayal and every hurt was placed upon Christ. Every pain and every circumstance, every point of grief is placed upon Christ. So he bore it all so that you might live. All of our grief, he is well acquainted with. All of our pain, he is well acquainted with. All of our hurt, he has felt at the very depth of his core, and he assumes it in his death, and he defeats it in his resurrection. It isn't just that he knows what you're walking through. That gives us no comfort. If he's just walked the same path, what I'm telling you here, he has walked the path, he has borne the pain, and ultimately he has defeated it in his resurrection and his ascension. So we are comforted that he knows the experiences of our grief. But I tell you this, we are much more comforted that he has defeated the very source of our grief. And that leads us to the third truth that I just want you to hang on to this morning. We are comforted by God's promise of eternal restoration. Grief doesn't get the last word for a follower of Christ. Pain doesn't get the last word for a follower of Christ. Death doesn't get the last word for a follower of Christ. And so we are comforted as we mourn because we understand that death and sin and the flesh and pain and hurt and all of these things that bring us to our knees and shock us in the midst of our life, that they are not the end of the story. Through his resurrection, through his powerful, accomplished work that God did in and through him, we have hope even at a funeral home. We have hope even when life doesn't work out. We are comforted with the fact that this is not the end of any story of the follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you know, many of you know, a part of, a part of my life story is I'm the oldest of three sons. 20 years ago, my youngest brother, Matthew went out on a hunting trip, and he died tragically at the age of 14. Danielle and I had been married for six days. Five years ago, my other brother, Michael, he died, struggled for years, fought courageously for years with substance abuse, and he died. So part of my story is, is a story of walking with a mom and a father and a stepmother who, who've grieved the unimaginable. There's some of you in this room who are parents who maybe have gone through that tragic journey of your life where you've had to pick out a casket for a son or a daughter and it is unimaginable to do once, and it is unthinkable to do twice. But I tell you this, 
Word of God and the people of God in the life of my family has been this powerful testimony that grief doesn't get the last word. That even in the midst of the pain of dealing with the ups and the downs and the shock of those experiences in my own family's life, hope still remains. Joy is still there. While while tears come in the evening, hope comes in the morning, and that has been true in my family's life. That there is joy and there's love, and there's moving forward in a hope of what God has promised us. But I say that to say, although those griefs have forevermore shaped my family's dynamic, there is a sense in which, there is a sense in which those losses, they, they never fully get healed this side of heaven. You never get over those kinds of losses. You move forward. You move forward with time. You move forward in the hope of, of Jesus Christ's promise. But, but there, there are no magical red ribbons to tie around the box of your grief or my grief. Everything isn't promised to be worked out this side of heaven. And there still is at Christmas still an ache, although it is not as acute as it was 20 years ago or it was five years ago, there is still a sense that when we gather together as a family, we're missing this side of heaven, what could have been. And we wonder, what what, what would Matthew be like now? What would Michael be like now? Who would they be married to? Uh, We we long for, I long for the nieces and nephews that I, I will not see. And so there is a sense that there is no magic red ribbon that gets tied around your grief And my grief, all of our tears are not wiped away this side of heaven. But praise God that this isn't the entire story. Because there there is coming a day. There is coming a day for every mother who has wept over the loss of a child. There is coming a day for every father who has picked out a casket for a child. There is coming for every person who has grieved the loss of a spouse, a father, and a mother. There is coming a day that Jesus tells us about and we read about in John's words that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. And so through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in his finished work, grief doesn't get the last word in my life and grief doesn't have to have the last word in your life. I look forward to the day. I look forward to the day with great expectation of getting to heaven and embracing Michael and Matthew and getting to catch up for a lot of time that we've missed this side of heaven, but we've got an eternity to live in this next world to come. But, but even greater than that, even greater than that, that earthly 
expectation of what that eternal reunion is going to look like. I tell, you, I tell you what I look forward to more than anything else with the promises of God's word as we come to heaven. I long for the day when the nail-scarred hands of our Savior will wipe away every tear from a mother's cheek. I long for the day when every sorrow is eternally vanquished. I long for the day and I take comfort in the promise that every wrong will be made right, that our pains will be transformed into praise, that cancer once and for all will be replaced with communion with God, every addiction will be transformed into adoration, and the shackles of death will be vanquished once and for all, and the sting of death will be no more. This is what I long for, and until we get there, we're comforted in the midst of our grief. We're comforted by God's presence with us in our grief and we're comforted by Jesus's personal experience of our grief and we are comforted by the promise of eternal restoration so hold on take hope blessed are those who mourn for you will child of God be comforted